You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. Do you have trouble with confined spaces? Well, open your windows or take a jog while listening to this episode in the great outdoors as you're heading down a very claustrophobic and tight corridor. Whether you find yourself trapped in a house and able to leave, in a car speeding down the road, in a lifeboat, in the middle of the sea, in a music room isolated by your own memories, or in a coffin literally buried deep underground, single locations can be used in an incredible amount of ways. In this episode, we will look at how single location can amplify claustrophobia, paranoia, and dread. Or on the flip side, amplify the feeling of loneliness and isolation. We will also talk about how effective single location usage can actually be for low-budget films, not to mention how natural it can feel for stage adaptations, and especially crime dramas and horror films. We will also look at how single locations has been used in experimental films, including those of Michael Snow. Before we at the very end look at the films that took single locations to their most extreme end. And you can probably already guess what films we are going to be talking about there. Some have become infamous. Joining me today are two wonderful co-hosts, Saul and Tom. And let's just start with a very quick opening question. When you think single location, what's the first thing that comes to mind and what really constitutes a single location film? Hi, this is Tom. I really enjoy single location films. I think that they can be incredibly inventive in terms of the storytelling, even when there's a constraint to the uh, creation of the film due to the single location. And I suppose the first thing that comes to mind when I think about single location films is kind of low-budget horror and sci-fi films that you mentioned, Chris. Films where the protagonist is either trapped or in a precarious position in a situation where they need to find a way out and, and escape. And I suppose what constitutes a single location film is when really the camera doesn't move from that location throughout the entire film. I suppose we're going to talk about this a bit as the podcast progresses because there are instances where there may be opening and closing shots that take somewhere else. But for me, the definition of a single location film, I like to restrict the idea to it just being specifically in the one location. Hi, it's Sol from Australia. When I first hear of the term single location, I think of two things. What instantly springs to mind is, oh, that sounds so boring and or gimmick city. However, I actually like a large number of single location films, but it's just the premise or the whole idea of it being a single location instantly makes me think, oh, well, that doesn't sound too adventurous, or that sounds like they're trying to do something gimmicky, or they don't have the budget to go further than that. There are a lot of films that do really great things with single locations, but sometimes takes you a bit longer to actually sit down and watch those films because they have these preconceptions in mind. In terms of what constitutes a single location, I think I'm quite curious with this. If it's a single location, it shouldn't move out of that location at all. And it should really be like one room or one car, as some examples come up. Like they shouldn't be moving from room to room within a house. 
but I know we are going to include some examples like that where it's set in one house or one mansion and they move from room to room. Yeah, and in some of our films today, we'll even be looking at films where they go slightly outside. For instance, stand on the porch, take a little walk in their garden or in somebody else's garden. So I, I do think that it is always a question of degrees. So you can have someone who's literally trapped in a coffin, you can have someone in a single room, or you can, you know, expand out. You can have a single house, a single mansion, a single train, a single spaceship. At that point, you know, it, it starts to also remove a little bit of what the single location gives you. Because I think it was a joke someone made before the podcast, but what about single city or a single country? Like, what about... Westerns aren't all Western single location because they take place in the American West. So when, when we talk about single location films, we will try to limit it down so at least it's the very same area and, and just be sure that we don't make ourselves too broad and look at films that really use the single location to their benefit, that manage to do something because of their singular location. Saul, you mentioned that when we talk about single location films, there's a lot of preconceptions there, that they're these gimmick films that don't really do anything else. But I think it's interesting that, as Tom mentioned, there are just so many horror films, especially lower budget horror films, that do constrict themselves to single locations. And even more horror films that primarily use single location uh, meaning that they really want that claustrophobia or an ease of being trapped in one place, but they're not purist about it. And then we're talking about anything, including The Shining, Evil Dead, you name it. It's just such a massive amount of horror films that just love that one primary location. But why do you think that is? I think with horror films, often the filmmakers want to give us the impression that the characters aren't able to escape and you can't get away from the evil. I think it does help in some ways to have a single location for the majority of a film, at least. But I guess when I hear that a film is only using the one location and you never get out of that location, it makes me go, huh? There are some films that are like take place in a single ATM booth, which are quite innovative with that. But a lot of the single location horror ones, I'm thinking, well, if they had the budget for it, there would be a few scenes that took place outside it, maybe. It's just my preconceptions going into the film. I like how Sol says that he can be kind of put off by the gimmick of a single location film. It's almost the opposite for me, especially when it comes to horror films. I'm always interested to see what the filmmakers can create and do with the self-imposed limitations of a single location. It always really intrigues me and like you mentioned Chris it kind of can enhance the sense of isolation for these characters who are stuck in a single location and amplify the dread surrounding the story that unfolds before us. But that's a really great point Tom and I also like the cinematic challenges it poses. I mean I know that in many of the cases we'll be talking about today we have for instance scenarios where the camera never ever leaves the house for instance or in one case where the camera or two cases perhaps where the camera just stands still it gets really interesting just what other limitations you can really impose on that single location shot especially when you can't theoretically shoot so many scenes for instance outside through a window etc and just increase both the claustrophobia you might feel as a viewer and this kind of experimentation with cinematic language so there, there's just so many different ways that 
the single location can be used. We were going to talk a little bit about whodunits right now, because just like horror films, whodunits love being in that main location. You know, you have an endless amount of films that take place in a mansion or a castle with the suspects in different rooms, and we can go all the way to Clue. But let's just move on to the films that truly are single location and truly live and breathe single location and starting with the perhaps most obvious and the ones that are perhaps most limited in the material from the very beginning the adapted plays where of course so many plays are literally set in that single location because of their original format uh, and we picked out some really interesting films uh, for you so let's just dive straight into them Starting with Secret Honor. Quite interesting and quite... How do you even say this? Like this emotionally powerful film by Robert Altman. I watched Secret Honor for the very first time this week. And it struck a chord of me in particular because of the incredible performance from Philip Baker Hall. Now he's the only actor that you see throughout the whole film's runtime. So the weight of this film's success rides on his performance and what a performance he gives. You see the deterioration of the man as he runs through his memories and his past and his history. And he plays uh, Richard Nixon in this film. So it's quite political. And sadly for me, I don't have a huge interest in American politics. So a lot of the stuff that he brings up didn't really resonate with me, but I could still appreciate it for his incredible performance and also for the fact that the film takes place entirely in his office and the inventive use of the camera work, which is quite animated and keeps the film alive. Whereas you could kind of have the preconception that a film with just one man in a room could be incredibly boring, but that's far from the case. I absolutely love Secret Honor. I've seen probably 20 or 30 films from Robert Altman, and this would be in my top five films from him. I actually don't find it to be a very political film. I found that the film for me was mainly about Richard Nixon as the human being and the dilemma that he finds himself in, where he's being judged for this one single misdeed. Everybody is forgetting or overlooking all the good things that he's done. And he's feeling tortured by this. I can only imagine what that would be like, where you make one mistake or you do something that was a little bit shady and suddenly every good thing that you've done that you've built up throughout your career, and he lists quite a few during the film, are completely ignored and you're only judged on this one thing and it becomes a defining part of your life. I think the single location really enhances that. Sort of like we're only these days judging Nixon on one thing. So we're only seeing him in one room, just in his office. Whereas with a different politician, maybe to get all around the White House, you'd get like all around different places. With Nixon, it's just been singled down to this one thing. And I just felt so much for Nixon as a character during this, as a vulnerable human being. Like Tom, I was also a big fan of the camera work and the different security cameras and the different screens there. And the single location also does really enhance the paranoia that Nixon is feeling. I also have to really 
praise the screenplay here and how this play must also act out in in real life because it runs so well almost just as it is you have the setup of richard nixon recording a kind of defense for himself or a setup for himself and with just these few simple tools you have his recorder you have his surveillance screens and you have his mental state and the way you see him unravel and speak to himself even at some point addressed you know at the actual pictures of previous presidents it manages to be quite an uneasy viewing i mean it's funny it's engaging but it's also such a hyper emotional film due to the performance by philip baker hall where he just really delivers and delivers and delivers and you just feel him through the entire film and to also really praise robert alpan here the way he shoots it because you just have that single room you never leave it you can send some kind of outside world through what he's talking about an author surveillance camera but you never ever leave and just with one person one room he manages to actually make something that's quite cinematically good he focuses for instance on the surveillance camera the way that the shots and the cinematic language really captures phil baker saul's movements and emotional state it just works so incredible well and becomes such a powerful experience so this is re- truly one of the in my opinion very best single location films i like how you bring up the pictures on the wall as well of the previous presidents and it just reminded me of how few props are actually involved there's obviously the drink as a nixon resorts a drink while he's recording this tape and the gun which plays a, a key role as he's toying with that while his mental stability comes into question and i must say that the ending is very powerful as well without spoiling it for anyone it kind of does leave you with a great image i think it's also really interesting that this was robert altman's only single location film he actually made arguably a couple of others during the 80s including streamers which is not that fresh in my mind but the other most notable one would be come back to the five and dine dimedin dimedin which is not as claustrophobic as there's far more characters and you're in this dining surrounding with people who used to be part of the games dean fan club essentially just the uh, bonding and going through the memories but it's still interesting that robert altman kept looking into adapting play in this way i think it's also interesting that you don't actually need to be trapped in a single room when you adapt a play and one of the most notable ones for me which is still single location in its most purest form is street scene from 1931 by king vidor and starring among others sylvia sydney because here you're literally on a single street all of the scenes are played outside or rather the studio version of the outside and you have such a vibrant large cast and what's interesting here is that it doesn't play into claustrophobia at all it is simply the case of bringing the play to life in a slightly more cinematic way and the way it acts the camera moves the way it speaks to the characters especially for the early sound era it's just really interesting how open and free this film feels one director that we can also mention in this theme is Roman Polanski he's adapted a number of stage plays including Carnage and Venus in Fears and Carnage is an excellent single location film I know that Sol raised a few questions about this earlier because 
there are scenes at the start and the end of the film that don't take place within the primary location. So perhaps it bends the rules slightly in that regard, but the majority of the film does take place in the one flat where two couples come to blows over a fight that is broken out between their children. And it's a brilliant character study. Lots of black humour in there throughout. And one of Polanski's better films of recent years. I thought Carnage was an excellent film. I've actually seen it two or three times. I didn't plug it for this podcast before because it does have those scenes at the beginning and at the end. And the fact that the adults are not present for them is actually very pivotal in terms of how they react to everything which they are assuming and making out has gone on without actually being there and seeing it themselves firsthand. Lansky does work very well with single locations or films mostly in one location because you even think of things like Repulsion or Cul-de-Sac. I thought I'd also mention just on the subject of play adaptations is you've got Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is not single location. They do go out in the middle of the film to a bowling alley and they come back. But if we're calling Carnage single location, you probably call Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf single location too. And again, that's about bickering couples. It's about couples on either side, the wife and the husband changing sides and ganging up against each other. Very similar dynamics to Carnage and very good use of minimal, if not exactly one single location. Another director we really need to mention in terms of single location has to be Sasha Gultry. And uh, it's too bad Clever Mathieu are not here to talk about this great early French director who spent so much of his time experimenting with what was possible, but also so much of his time simply making adaptations of his own plays, some of them more successful than others in just how they feel. One of the ones that feel the most natural and not limited by their location usage has to be, My father was right which is really interesting in that it set over many, many years. I believe it's set in three different time eras with relatively different moving sets of generations experiencing the same kind of issue with love. It's essentially all set in the same larger villa and mostly in the father character's study. You never leave this villa. You see every time someone new arrives, they arrive at the gate and they come in. But the way it moves in terms of plot progressions and play with all these different generations, it feels much larger and freer than it actually is. And another one that's also primarily one location would be his film, I believe from the same year, called Desiree. Another larger house or villa. And that film also feels more visually interesting as well, because it has such striking, beautiful cinematography, along with his, you know, traditional, rauchy humor. So I definitely think Shasha Guthrie deserves a lot of respect for early single location or primarily single location films. And one more final play adaptation before we move on has to be Who is Klaus? Which I'm not even sure how to exactly pronounce, but it's, of course, John Paul Sartre's famous or even infamous play called No Exit in English, which also coined the famous phrase, hell is other people. Hi, French pronunciation police over here. We've been called for a couple of infractions. The play, which was adapted to a film, is by Jean-Paul Sartre, and it's called Huiclos. It's actually the term we use to talk about these kind of films, these single location films. It means closed door. I will, however, let Chris go there for this time, because he 
pronounced Sacha Guitry and Désiré quite right. So he's free to go for now. No, this is not strictly... Well, it is strictly single location because the opening scene is the characters arriving in the hotel lobby and then the, all of the rest of the film takes place in one of the hotel rooms. So in the broader sense, all of it is inside of the same hotel which represents hell. But almost, almost the entire story takes place in one singular room with three main protagonists going at each other. And it really delves into the psychological underlying idea, which we might even enter a little bit into with the exterminating angel shortly. But what is so fascinating is this, this idea that hell isn't actually torture in the traditional sense. Hell is simply being locked in a fairly okay hotel room with two other people for the rest of eternity. And seeing these characters spar, their personalities clash, very simple effects outside. It's just such a claustrophobic film that really, really delivers, including Arlette in one of the leading roles. Because, of course, in this specific example I'm listing, I'm talking about the 1954 version by Jacqueline Audrey, which to me is the very best iteration of this story so far, which could really be redone again and again and again. And it does feel fitting to end the play adaptation section of the podcast with this film simply because of the title. Viclo? No exit. Because that is so often a descriptor that is representative of all single location films. And also because we're leading into our next section and what single location is probably most known for the feeling of claustrophobia and we can start with the film i jokingly say did what jaws did for the sea but with every single room that exists i'm talking of course of the exterminating angel a film that, while not strictly single location due to its epilogue, really captures the sense of being trapped as our well-to-do, massive ensemble cast gather for a nice dinner after a trip to the opera, just to realize, slowly but surely, that they cannot leave the room they're in. It's not the case that they're physically trapped, no doors are locked, no one is holding them captive, it's rather that they just can't enter the hallway. But as they start to realize, they begin to feel physical pain. This film is so much interesting in both normalizing the scenario and building up this surreal, nightmarish vision of the logic, both from the inside of the house, but even from the street outside. As People consistently try to get in and talk about going in, but can't. It's slick, beautifully satirical, incredibly dark, but with a very nice comedic touch. I haven't seen The Exterminating Angel in an incredibly long time. When I did see it, I was very young in my cinematic journey. The premise absolutely fascinated me. People not being able to leave a room and not knowing why and not being able to control it. 
Anyway, when I sat down and actually watched it, I thought it was um, incredibly, I don't, know, I don't want to say stupid, but, you know, watching it at 15 or 16, I didn't really get very much out of the film. It's probably something that I should revisit because I've come to quite like quite a few Daniel films over the years, but I just haven't really been attracted to go back to it just because it was just so off-putting when I saw it originally. So I don't want you to think that we're ganging up on you here, Chris, but I share the exact same sentiments as Saul with The Exterminating Angel. I saw it at a young age and it didn't really do anything for me. And perhaps now I've got more appreciation for cinema that has a surreal approach. It may resonate with me more if I revisit it. And perhaps it is one that I, I need to revisit because your description certainly does sound far more interesting than the film that I remember watching all those years ago. Oh yes, I would strongly recommend revisiting it. I mean, both in terms of the actual elegant cinematic techniques that's used. I mean, it's such a beautifully looking film. To the ensemble cast, to the comedy, to the feeling of not being able to leave. You, as a spectator, really get trapped into this feeling. We just want to shout at them. Just try it. Just go. Just walk in. Just leave. But at the same time, it becomes so normalized. And you're spending so much time with these characters. And without spoiling anything for our listeners, I do think that the epilogue, which is set in a different location, comes with such an additional punch to this as well. But to go on to perhaps the second most famous, or even the most famous, given its incredible stature, single location film that really delves into the idea of claustrophobia and not being able to leave, but for a very different reason, is Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, one of the most genuinely famous, big and massive Hollywood classics of all time. Sergeant Jimmy Stewart as someone who is trapped in a wheelchair, starts spying at his neighbors for fun at first, before he starts to expect that something incredibly, incredibly wrong has happened. And his own paranoia start to increase. And what is so interesting here is that at no real point during the film do we leave his perspective from his room looking out through his window. And it's just done so incredibly well. It really is perhaps the definitive film when it comes to voyeurism and this idea of a man who is trapped in his own apartment and watching his neighbours intently until he stumbles upon what he believes may be a murder. And it's a really influential film when you consider the single location subgenre. Now, in today's films that are influenced by it, there's lots of different angles that they can take and when they look into the voyeurism through TV screens and cameras, etc. But back then, it's all through just binoculars and a telescope. And I love that part of the film. It, it's excellent. It even inspired a, a loose remake with a Shia LaBeouf called Disturbia, which is perhaps not worth remembering. I liked Disturbia a lot more than I expected to. I was expecting it just to rip off Rear Window, and I think it kind of did its own thing also. However, getting back to Rear Window, yeah, it's one of the classics. It's one of my all-time top 50 films. I would have seen it four or five times, at least, in my life. Very seminal film, as Tom said, with the voyeurism, and also just in terms of the way that he's watching all the different apartments, and he keeps changing between which one he's looking at. 
the whole film for me is a metaphor for television you have like televisions coming into the homes in the 1950s and it's like he's channel surfing as he's looking through different apartments and what's really interesting is that even though it's set in the one location you don't really feel like you've been trapped in that one room the whole time you're constantly looking out at all these other rooms and all these other places that we can see from his apartment window it feels like we've been in the garden it feels like we've been in that person's apartment we've been over here we've been over there so it's a very interesting approach to a film and also hitchcock has an amazing cameo in it he's the only character who actually looks back at jimmy stewart everybody else just does their own business with the windows open they just ignore the fact somebody could be looking at them it is definitely a very interesting use of a single location and just extremely interesting because it's one where it doesn't make you feel as claustrophobic as you might otherwise. And I might just quickly mention there, because Tom and I were chatting before the podcast, we're talking about well, maybe the unfriended films. Do we do that as single location or not? And I'm sort of like, well, if you're saying rear windows, single location, unfriended is also... We're all seeing one computer screen. Yes, we're seeing different rooms, but we're all seeing it from the one single place. So one film that I haven't actually thought about up until right this moment, it just slipped my mind for some reason, but it was the excellent Darren Aronofsky film, Mother. Now, I absolutely loved this film. It was a great use of a a single location. It's such a great mystery. It's set out to be like a... uh, almost like a home invasion film. Yeah, that was an absolutely, I guess, terrifying experience for me. I'm very paranoid about home invasion and people like coming into my own personal space. And that film for me was like a living, breathing nightmare. This woman's trapped in her home, or she's not trapped there, but she's in her home. And all these guests keep coming in and they keep breaking stuff and she just can't get rid of them. And her husband keeps inviting more and more people in there. And it does have symbolic purposes at the end of the film. It also sort of ties into a film that I want to mention, a Greek film, Eurydice, B-A-N-T-37, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's the single best film that I've seen this year. It's very similar to another. You've got this woman who's in her apartment, and there's all these people who keep trying to like come in and break in through the windows. And it's a very scary film, and you feel very uncomfortable for her, and you feel like she's really suffocating. Uh, trapped inside the house not sort of trapped inside again but you know she's too scared to go out and all these people keep coming in but then is it really in her mind is she just over exaggerating it it's a very dynamic film if anybody wants to see it hasn't already it's from director nikos nicolaitis he also did the very infamous film uh singapore sling which come to think of it's probably also a single location film Again, a bonkers film, but again, I would highly recommend it. Really interesting film about a private detective trying to find a missing woman and then sort of getting involved in the mind games of a mother and daughter who live in this one location and, yeah, who might not really be mother and daughter. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of films from from that director, but those two films definitely, very interesting looks at single locations, really heightening paranoia, intensity, escapability not being in control of the situation in your personal space no i really liked Evridiki as well but I, I kept comparing it in my head to repulsion with the roman polanski film we mentioned previously starring the fantastic katrin Deneuve, in just how one person with a seemingly or, or in the case of repulsion a very clearly 
poor grasp on reality just falls apart and in repulsion you can really really feel it you can feel the intensity of her, just her entire being breaking the way she looks the way the room around her reacts it's just such an incredibly intense experience which to me actually takes me all the way back to mother because mother is generally one of the most if not the most intense film experience I've ever had. I don't think any film in just such a visceral way grabs you and just makes you feel overwhelmed by the sensory overload. In fact, um, my wife was calling in from the other room that whatever I was watching was making her feel incredibly uncomfortable because the sound landscape of that film is just so overpowering in itself, even without seeing the extreme visuals and the story that just becomes more and more overwhelming and insane and bizarre. And I realized that Mother, for so many reasons, has been dismissed by a lot of people, which is obviously their right. And I can see why, of course, Aronofsky is always overly blunt, especially here with this clear biblical allegory. But it's just the sensory overload, the visual experience, the way these actors engage with each other. This film as a whole, it is absolutely incredible. I can certainly agree with you there, Chris, with Arnofsky. He's certainly a divisive filmmaker. Lots of his films tend to split audiences and Mother did just that. For me, though, it worked perfectly. It's a beautiful psychological horror film. You really get the sense of isolation that Jennifer Lawrence suffers from, even though she's, you know, at home with other people there. But it's when more and more people start invading her home, she's struggling to fathom the reason behind this. It's a beautiful allegory that isn't quite clear from the start. And that's what I loved about it, just puzzling it out, trying to work out what the director's intentions were. And they do become clear partway through the film. And once you realise that and you realise what he's getting at, it just becomes something else. And I think a lot of people are expecting a typical home invasion film. And it does flirt with elements of horror, but it's so much more than that. It's one of those films that I'd recommend reading up as little as possible before sitting down to watch it. I deliberately went in knowing almost nothing about it. Other than the fact that Jennifer Lawrence was getting trashed for a performance for whatever reason. Other than that, I knew nothing about it, and I thought it really worked well for me because of that. I'd agree that it is a film best approached, knowing as little as possible. It did take me a while to understand what the director's intentions were, and that for me was part of the fun of the film. And I also want to mention how brutal it is in parts. Aronofsky's kind of renowned for his dark, disturbing imagery that he uses in his film. And Mother just steps that up to another level. It's very extreme, but it's done in such a, a beautiful way that it's a film that sticks with you and, and haunts you for quite, quite some time afterwards. Yes, and I have to also say that Jennifer Lawrence was absolutely fantastic in this film. I, I don't understand how anyone could dismiss her for it. The way you feel with her throughout is absolutely incredible. And like we talked about before, or even during this podcast as well, like I think this is a film that just haunts us still. We got sidetracked on how incredible Mother is. 
So I'll obviously mention the Greek films Singapore Sling and Eurydice BA 2037. I agree with Sol's interpretation that these are just bonkers films. I enjoyed viewing them, although sadly I don't think they're really for me. The director's unique style is certainly interesting, it's fascinating, and he does some great camera work, in particular on Eurydice BA. I'm sure that he splits the film up into three different sections and his approach to filming differs throughout each section and that's to emphasize the trauma that the main character is undergoing and that was quite an inspired decision and although he shows some great ambition it doesn't really come together as a whole for me one of my favorite single location films is an australian film from rolf to here who I've said in previous podcasts is my favourite Australian director. I think he's the best director we've got working in my country. It's a film called Alexandra's Project from 2003, starring Helen Boudet, and it's about a man who comes home and views a videotape that his wife has given him for his birthday. And it starts off as a really nice surprise-type tape, but as things go on, our perceptions change. And by the end, we start feeling very differently to the way that we did when he first sat down to watch the tape. He never leaves the room. And without changing location at all, Dahir manages to really hone in on the fact that just knowing a few things or being told a few things can completely change one's perception in life. And there's also some things that go on towards the end, which will make him feel a bit trapped in. And of course, he spent the entire film inside the room viewing the tape. I don't want to say too much about the film, but it's probably one Australian film that I've recommended to the most people on the ICM forum that's got the most positive responses. Most of the Australian films that I've recommended don't seem to go down too well, but this one constantly seems to get positive feedback on and people are like oh well Saul actually recommended an Australian film that actually is half decent <laughs> for once Saul your recommendation turned out to be great no I'm only kidding you <laughs> recommended some great films so don't put yourself down like that but I totally agree this is one of De Heer's best films yeah I'd go as far as to say that and I think it ties in with the single location puzzle aspect quite nicely in the fact that once again the audience are left in the dark as to what's about to happen and we're trying to work out what's going on and the director slowly feeds us clues throughout and it just makes it more of an interactive experience you know you're engaging your brain you're trying to work out what's going on it's an inventive puzzle it makes the most of its single location because we're placed in the uncomfortable position of being a voyeur to Steve's unenviable situation and it offers a, a raw deconstruction of their relationship which makes it a grim yet kind of compelling experience to endure because you're kind of put off it's kind of uncomfortable to watch but at the same time you're fascinated to find out what is going to happen here. What's interesting about Rolf to here is that Alexander's project is not the only film that he's done that's set almost primarily in one location. He actually did a film seven years before that 
board the quiet room which is likewise set in a single location for at least most of it i didn't think it was actually entirely in one location but clem who's not participating tonight did recently watch and he said oh it's pretty much all one location so it depends how pure he's being on it but at least the majority of the film does take place in one location in a girl's bedroom as per the title of the quiet room it's about a girl who feels that her parents haven't been very good parents haven't been treating her well so she decides that she's going to not talk at all and throughout the film we hear her thoughts out loud so we still get an insight into what she's thinking but we don't actually see her or it's not to begin off with talking out loud to the parents. The parents are trying to understand her and communicate with her, and they're not sure what's going on. She's just done it as a way of coping with a situation that she otherwise doesn't need to cope with. And what's interesting about the single location here is it's not a single location that's done for the purposes of a play adaptation or for the purposes of paranoia or claustrophobia. It actually taps into something else location which which is loneliness and she is really alone she feels really isolated she doesn't feel properly loved uh becomes a little bit of a game it's, it's somewhat different parts of what, of what we hear her say but it's just very dynamic the um whole way the film plays out and it's another film that i managed to recommend to a few people and uh, i know i've actually got enough support that we managed to get it on to the doubling the canon list this year which i was very proud of we'll hear what tom's take was on it because i know that he also saw the quiet room and also liked it yes i'll totally agree the quiet room is a great film and i love how it's told from the perspective of a, a frightened child it's quite a hard-hitting drama and the vow of silence that she takes in, in protest against the constant bickering between her parents it's very moving and quite poignant and it paints a painfully accurate picture of a, a withdrawn child who only really wants a family life to return to the blissful experience it, it once was i especially like how to hear films the quiet room because we see it through the perspective of a child so the camera angles are all really low to emphasize the, the view of a child and the internalized voiceover narrative allows us into the fragile mind of, of the young girl as she tries to make sense out of her unhappy isolated existence so this for me is a, another great example of de Heer's inventiveness when it comes to approaching films with their unique styles i have unfortunately not seen the quiet room but i think it's very interesting how single location is used to invoke the feeling of isolation and how differently it is felt. Now, one of the biggest films of this kind is Satyajit Ray's The Music Room from 1958, which uses single location in a very interesting way, as we can more directly see loneliness and tragedy of our protagonist as you move from crowded rooms and vibrant life to him almost solitary, alone and old. This is also a film that takes place over several decades and it is one that feels very open for a single location film as the space around him becomes incredibly important and the mansion 
despite the fact that so much of the film takes place in the music room itself, is massive. And we see the halls, we see the bedroom, we see the roof. We even see the outside area and the river that runs through the property. And it's a little bit like being in this oasis of just his own isolation and solitude, because we will see people ride in or ride out from afar. We will see the horizon, but we always stay just there by his mansion, him alone, him with, without spoiling anything, his own sorrow and loneliness and the life he used to have. And of course, music within the music room is also such a pivotal part of the film. And it includes both these personal aspects, which are really striking, but also a lot of social and historical commentary and a lot of intriguing Indian music. So it's really interesting what Ray managed to put together in this much smaller budgeted and just generally smaller film made in between the first two and the last film in his most famous Apu trilogy. It's just a spectacular and wonderful work. I feel like I've not even scratched the surface of Ray's filmography yet because he was quite a prolific filmmaker, although I have seen The Music Room, but unfortunately I didn't have the same reaction to it as Chris. Now, I was impressed by the location. It's a beautiful location, a great setting for the story, but the story didn't really connect to me. But as always, when I hear Chris's interpretations and what he says about isolation, it does make me want to go back and revisit the film. So you've done a great job of, of selling it there, Chris. Perhaps, as we discussed in the podcast about rewatching, I need to rewatch more films. Thanks, Tom. And I just wanted to mention too that I actually had a somewhat similar reaction to it the first time. I, I wasn't as personally invested in it. I wasn't as gripped by it. So I think this is perhaps one of those films where it takes being a little bit more invested, being a little bit older, and also being in a different stage of mind to really appreciate what the film really delivers. It's kind of funny how earlier on Tom was joking about this being a hang up on Chris one because, like Tom, I didn't get very much out of the music room. Although, like you said, Chris, maybe it goes better on rewatch. I've only seen it once. I was probably a little bit older than when I watched The Exterminating Angel. But again, it wasn't a film that on the maybe 17 or 18-year-old version of myself really did much for me. I have liked a lot of other films that I've seen from Ray. I dislike some, but I've liked a lot of other ones, particularly the chess players. I think it's an excellent film. And also The Stranger. I was thinking about that, The Stranger from 1991, which I think was his last film. I don't know if that actually takes place in more than one location. There might be another single location one. And that's uh, a really interesting film that you've got this guy who says he's a long-lost relative. You don't know if he is. And there's just all this uncertainty in the air, which I guess is really enhanced by the fact that we seldom leave a location, maybe never leave a location. I was only just thinking about it now. It actually might be another single location film. In complete contrast to the setting of the music room, I'd like to mention All is Lost. This is a brilliant film set on the ocean, directed by J.C. Chandor, with Robert Redford in the lead role. And it's basically one man up against the elements He's out on the ocean and he runs into some trouble with his boat that begins to sink. And 
it's an impressive performance from Redford. There's a real steadfastness in his portrayal of an aging sailor lost at sea. And it's a really engaging and harrowing tale of survival. It's fascinating to think that it's a single location because it's just on the boat, but you've got the vast expanse of the ocean. And this creates a totally different portrayal of isolation and loneliness to that that is seen in the music room. And I think it's a great comparison piece, even though apart from the isolation angle, they are vastly different films. I haven't actually seen All Is Lost, but what's interesting about J.C. Chandall is that I was trying to Tom off air and we're thinking about Margin Call. And I think Margin Call pretty much takes place all inside the one office building. And I don't know if that really goes so much the loneliness of it, but obviously it's a very large building, like it's a skyscraper in the city. And there's only a few of them left there late at night trying to grapple with this, you know, financial crisis or whatever, which, you know, might end up ruining their company. I have unfortunately not seen All Is Lost either, but just the fact that you can have this openness around you while still trapped in a single location makes things really interesting. But to move on to one of the other pillars of single location films and moving directly to another film I unfortunately have not seen yet, low budget films and the infamous ICM forum favorite, Stalled. And I know both of you quite enjoy it. First of all, I must say that I love the contrast between the single location films that delve into loneliness, where the single location isn't necessarily due to budgetary constraints, it's due to an artistic decision. But I am really fascinated by the films that explore single locations primarily because of budgetary constraints, because there's always something inventive about what the filmmakers employ to make these films work so well. And like Chris mentioned, Stalled is one of my favourite examples of these. I'm very intrigued by films that take place in unique locations, and Stalled takes place in a toilet store, basically. It's a very funny, low-budget zombie film where a man gets trapped in a toilet during a zombie outbreak and almost the entirety of the film takes place within this toilet. It's very funny, very gory and the creative team behind it clearly have a lot of passion and a lot of love for the horror genre and that comes through if you're looking for something interesting, a bit unique and a fun take on the zombie outbreak genre then I would highly recommend Stalled. Contrary to uh, what Chris has said, I haven't actually seen every single horror film under the sun, even that sometimes feels like I have. I haven't seen Stored. I don't have a big affinity for zombie films. It's something where I really struggle these days to find films that do a unique take on it. It does sound like Stored does a unique take on it. I wasn't actually aware that it was set entirely in a toilet cubicle. All that I knew about it was it was a zombie film. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. But maybe it is something that I will look up now. So it's good to hear Tom's recommendation. Another low-budget zombie film that is worth mentioning is the brilliant Pontypool. This is a film that is set in a basement radio station during a, a zombie outbreak that seems to transmit from person to person through the use of language. 
I know what you're thinking, that sounds very bizarre, but it works incredibly well. As I did English language and linguistics at university, this kind of resonated with me in a way that I wouldn't usually get from a horror film. It was very intelligent. It's a bizarre and an incredibly innovative horror. And there's a great central performance from Stephen McCarty as the, the radio DJ who barricades himself in his own recording studio. He's trying to find out how the zombie outbreak is, is transmitted. And all the time he's broadcasting to the local area to send out warnings until trouble comes knocking on his door or his radio station. I have seen Pontypool and I did absolutely love it also. I agree so much about McCarty's performance, very dynamic, and also a really great use of the single location, just sort of like the feeling of everything like closing in and you sort of like communicating with the world out there. I think it makes a really good contrast to something like The Fog from John Carpenter, which is also largely centred on a radio broadcast. And in that one, we actually are outside for a lot of it and we see The Fog Monster, which is not really scary at all, not particularly out of that film. I was a bit cautious with Pontypool, but I think it does a great job of using the radio broadcast as the launching pad for the horror tale. As well as low-budget horror films that take place in a single location, I think that limitation plays in really nicely with the sci-fi genre as well. There are lots of examples of inventive filmmakers who take fascinating concepts and build upon them with a small budget to make them seem far grander in scale than they actually are. One such example is a favourite film of mine that I am forever championing, a film called LFO from Sweden. And it's a bizarre science fiction comedy about a man who is toying around with radio waves. This kind of links back to Pontypool again. And he basically discovers a way to hypnotize people through the use of radio waves. And he goes about hypnotizing his neighbors and getting them to do all sorts of tasks for him. And it goes into some quite dark places, but first and foremost, it, it is a black comedy. So there's humor throughout, which, should I say, alleviates the bleakness and the darkness surrounding the, the situation. I absolutely love this film. I totally agree, Tom. LFO is an amazing film and a very funny black comedy. Like you said, it gets into some really dark territory, some of the twisted things that he gets his neighbours to do. The performances of the actors who play his neighbours are just incredible with the really odd comical things he gets them to do, you know, or playing, you know, being a wife and a teenage son. And there's also some interesting morality things in there also. You know, he keeps claiming that it's, he's doing it for science, that occasionally you need to disregard morals. But is he doing this for personal gain, or is he actually interested in bettering humanity? So I found it a very funny film. I found it very inventive, what it did with the very minimal technology and the very minimal locations but also very thought-provoking at the same time. And it's a film that, likewise, I've tried to recommend to different people, but it's something which, yeah, it's a bit hard to try and upsell because it does sound very out there. 
And when I sat down to watch it, I wasn't even sure if I would like it. Uh, just a really interesting look at power, you know, abuse of power, just fulfillment, filling voids in one's life, and how this guy sort of like accidentally stumbles on a way to do it. I'm really pleased that you like it as much as me, Salt. And I just wanted to add there some things that the film does that sets it aside from other single location films and, and really goes to town on that concept. It kind of borrows from Rear Window in a sense because any action that takes part outside of the primarily location is cleverly alluded to through phone calls or sound recordings. And the main character, when he eavesdrops through the microphones, he's secretly stashed in his neighbor's house. And I think it's a clever way of making the film seem larger than it actually is. And it plays into that idea of voyeurism as well, where the main character is completely and outrightly spying on his neighbors and using that for his own gain. And like you said, it is a thought-provoking film. There's a lot to unpack in there, but it is also very funny at the same time. I mean, I'm afraid to say that while I liked LFO, it really didn't work as a comedy for me. But it, it did quite work as a concept film, because that's one of the real things that LFO does really well. It sets up an original concept where the idea that sound waves can change the way humans interact. And then it plays with this idea further and further and further into some really extreme scenarios. Now, I, I do think that this is one of those very clear low-budget films where you can really feel it, but it's also done in one of those ways that you, you are really engaged by that basic idea and you do want to see where it goes. And without spoiling anything, it goes to a very extreme but also very understandable and logical end conclusion. But there's also two other films we outlined here as primarily one location that we wanted to talk about. And the first one of them is Coherence. And I think one of the really amazing things about Coherence beyond the concept is that is it single location or is it an infinite number of locations? Coherence is another great example of a single location science fiction film. It doesn't really have any bells and whistles. There's no amazing special effects. There's no big explosions, but it, it doesn't need that. Like LFO, it's just got an incredibly thought-provoking concept and it goes to town on that. I can completely understand the argument for it not necessarily being a single location film. It was another film like LFO, actually, that I saw at a film festival where I had no expectations going in. And in both instances, these films just blew me away because they've got incredibly intelligent writing at the core of the films and they really build upon these ideas and explore them in fascinating ways that are quite unexpected. As we are spoiling over here, it's... Spoiler warning. We've decided that we'd like to spoil it for you. Spoiler warning. The argument would be that it's set in an infinite number of locations because each time they go out the door, they end up going into a different parallel or alternative universe. So it's technically an unlimited number of locations, but it's actually shot in the one house. So it's shot in the one location. It's like the uh, Vincenzo Nasley film Cube, 
cube was all shot in one single location. And each of those locations were decorated in different ways to seem like an infinite number of locations. I really like how you managed to bring cube into the conversation because I know we weren't sure about mentioning cube, but for me, I think it is a single location film. Although the action takes place in multiple cubes, it is, as you said, just shot in the one room. And it's another great example of a low-budget sci-fi film that does a lot with its single location idea. And for me, I would also consider Coherence to be a single location. But like you said, I can totally understand your argument for the other way too. And of course, if we're going to be talking about mansions, etc. as a single location, a network of cubes keeping people trapped could also be considered single location because it's so closed in. One of the really interesting and fantastic things about coherence is the slow way you start to put everything together, the clues you get, the way the characters interact. And this also fairly circular logic where you're not sure if it is a time loop or, or what is actually going on here. And it's just a small ca- and ensemble cast dialogue and a few props, including just one house and a few outside sequences right outside of the house. It manages just in- expand into this colossal idea. But the next really cool concept film is The Man from Earth, which is all set in a very similar way in one house with several people meeting up. And what is really fascinating here is that the entire film is not just carried out through dialogue, but through storytelling. So you have one principal storyteller simply telling stories, which starts to unravel how all of the other characters see this person and when you have such a low budget and you can come up with an idea that simple that is just incredibly impressive to me even though a lot of the storytelling elements may seem a little too easy a little too cheap what this film managed to put together is incredible the man from earth is definitely an inventive film however i feel like how much you take from it kind of depends on whether you buy into what the story is actually telling you. And for me, the, that aspect didn't really work. I did enjoy the concept behind it, but I wasn't particularly satisfied with where the film went. However, I've got to say that these low-budget horror and science fiction films that use a single location really impressed me. And if anyone who's listened to this podcast has other examples that perhaps I've not even seen or heard of yet, I'd love for you to come to the iCheck Movies forum and comment on the thread for this episode and tell me about them because I'm always interested in hearing more about films like these. I very much liked The Man from Earth. I thought it did amazing stuff with its single location and the fact that it's mostly just a film conversation. and. I know it's easy to be underwhelmed with where it goes, depending on what you believe, but one of the key points in there is that there's no way that the characters could disprove what he was saying. So it was sort of like they kept asking questions 
about what it was like and they were like sort of like got themselves really intrigued in it so it was a situation where i thought like at the end there it was left a bit ambiguous maybe it wasn't i just felt a bit of um ambiguity in there which i thought made it interesting it's sort of like the first example that comes to mind is the in towards the end of eyes wide shut where the sydney pollock character asked tom cruise you know well, what if it didn't happen what if it did and it's sort of like the same sort of like dynamic going on with the man from earth but yeah I was just really blown away by it. I wasn't expecting much by it because I thought, oh, you know, gimmicky or whatever, whole conversation filmed in one location. And I thought I did amazing stuff with the fact that it was just a series of conversations and prodding questions and answers and the whole ride that you're taking on without leaving the room at all. And to take the conversation onward to some films that aren't really that low budget considering the talent that was involved, And the first film is Lifeboat by Alfred Hitchcock, which, contrary to how it might feel, is not based on a play. I believe it's been turned to a play since because it's so well suited for it. But here we just have a massive ensemble cast on a lifeboat. And one of the most intriguing things here is just how effective it is. It just starts with the boat is gone. The, they're on the lifeboat. That's it. Hitchcock manages to cut through all of the traditional disaster film elements and all of the traditional setups of the character. He just lets this be revealed throughout the drama itself. And what goes along with the story is this in the midst of World War II and that they actually fish up one of the Germans that sank their ship. And this is contrary to just being about claustrophobia or paranoia, though there is certainly elements of paranoia in how they should treat the German soldier. This really is a story of characters trapped together and the emotions that ensues. I really enjoyed Lifeboat and more than I was expecting to. It was a Hitchcock film that I saw rather late into my film-going journey uh, after I'd already become a bit disenchanted with Hitchcock. But I was very impressed with it because it was a very timeless tale with the moral dilemmas of what do we do? Do we help him out? Do we not? But also the whole idea about trusting the enemy and, you know, can we trust him? So a lot of very universal themes in there which I thought, you know, went beyond just the allied versus Axis tensions. Just a very human tale of trust, mistrust, desperation, adverse conditions, and the fact that it's just um, set on this boat. I think one of the lines is, on our own, we can make our own laws, and they are pretty much on their own on the boat the whole time. A very intense film, very different to a lot of Hitchcock's other films. And I'll definitely highly recommend it, especially if you, like me, but a bit disenchanted by Hitchcock late into your film-going journey. And taking us over to the film that is perhaps the most known and arguably one of the most beloved films of all time, 12 Angry Men. It's not strictly in the jury room. We do, if I recall correctly, see a scene from the trial as well, obviously in the connecting building. But 
almost the entirety of the film is really set in that one jury room and just like lifeboat you have this massive gallery of characters discussing about the law punishment and revealing things about themselves obviously with a fantastic lead performance by henry fonda and just the way this film feels it's explosive the dialogue is incredible and it's one of those films that really really believe was based on the play but it's not it's genuinely made for the screen i think that is also felt in just how unseemingly cinematic sydney lumet manages to make it because while you may be so caught up in the drama and in the dialogue that you don't notice it the long takes he uses and the way the camera moves incorporating so many different styles of shots is truly impressive and it's even more impressive to remember that this was Lumet's feature film debut he got all of the stars and he got his pitch perfect script and then he made this film so again it is an example of a film that is constrained by its budget to some extent but it's such a massive film which still lives on as one of the most popular films of all time to this day it's remarkable chris to think that 12 angry men was lume's directorial debut like you say it's an exceptional film real nail-biting thriller when you consider it takes place in a single location and it's basically 12 men debating over something it's quite incredible to think that he manages to make such a suspenseful picture out of this situation and i absolutely love the film it's one of the best single location films out there well, what's interesting about 12 angry men is that yes it was sydney lumet's first feature film but he actually built pretty much an entire career out of making films that were set in one location or primarily one location. We almost talked about Death Trap in this podcast, except it's got a scene at the beginning and the end that sort of takes it out of the one house. You've got Dog Day Afternoon, which is almost entirely set in that place with Al Pacino and the hostage situation. Murder on the Orient Express, other than a few flashbacks, is pretty much entirely on the train. I'll say they're almost entirely in the location where the um, nuclear disaster is about to go off. The offence from memory is Sean Connery, I think pretty much entirely with Ian Bannon in the police station. Child's Play, one of Sidney Lumet's most underrated films, an amazing film set in a boys' boarding school, single location. So... He's the one director I really think about in terms of using minimal locations and using them really well. With 12 Angry Men, yeah, it's not strictly one single location, but he does get some really intense stuff out of the characters being confined in that one room for, I'd say, 99.5 maybe percent of the film, or at least above 95 percent of the film, surely is inside that one room. It's because they're inside of that one room, they can't escape from each other. So tensions naturally build. And the most amazing thing about the film is the way the characters switch slowly from one side to another side. It all happens through discussion, through conversations. So it's the same thing as Man from Earth. It's a film that's entirely built on dialogue. And because it's entirely built on the dialogue, the single location actually feeds really well into the structure of the movie. So we went from low budget, 
up to actual Hollywood films on a slightly tighter budget. And I will take it all the way around again and into the realm of experimental films. And, of course, Michael Snow, who I know is one of Saul's very favorite directors. I absolutely love Michael Snow's films. He is an experimental film director, but his experimental films are actually very easy to get a hang on because there's a narrative or a semblance of a narrative to all the films, but he does something different with them. The two films I'll talk about in particular will be Back and Forth and Wavelength, but I will mention three others of his that are readily available because they do sort of play into the single location dynamic. Uh, Wavelength is Michael Snow's most famous film. It's a film which is set in a single apartment room and it's designed to look like a single unbroken zoom in to a painting on the wall. But the thing is that it isn't a single unbroken take. There's all these different filmic techniques in hand, color changes, things uh, get dissolved together, the colors are inversed. There's editing there, but the editing is not very visible and everything is blurred together. And there actually is a plot to the film. The whole idea of wavelengths is that somebody goes into the apartment, is murdered, and then nobody finds the body for a certain amount of time. And we don't really get the motives for it. We don't know why he was killed. But just the whole blurring of time is really interesting because the whole idea is that he's dead and death is death, regardless of whether he's discovered one minute later or a week later. So the whole playing around with time is really interesting and that we're all stuck in this one room and the room remains unchanged because he's dead. He can't move around. He can't do anything. So until somebody discovers his body, it is all going to stay that way the whole time. So it's a very dynamic film there. There's lots of other things, things going on with the sound design. The sound design does get a bit irksome. I found it a bit annoying when I last watched it. But just incredibly interesting what Michael Stone manages to do with the whole murder situation. So it's a murder movie. It's not a murder mystery movie. It's about time elapsing, and it's about this room still sort of being there and still existing for an unknown amount of time, while the person who was occupying the room is now suddenly dead. We talk about back and forth because they've gone on a lot about wavelength. Back and forth is set in a classroom, and the camera literally goes back and forth. It sort of like pivots around back and forth, and it sounds really repetitive because it's an empty classroom. But it's all about Michael Snow lulling us into a false sense of security. Because then suddenly different things happen. Suddenly we hear different sounds. Suddenly somebody pops up the window. Suddenly we see people in the room. So like the camera would like pivot to the right and we go back to the left. And suddenly there's somebody sitting there. So our idea is that we start seeing things. Do we? Don't we? Is it just in our mind? It's really interesting, the whole classroom setting, because the whole idea I quite have when I last watched, it's like classrooms in general, you know. It's easy to let your mind wander if it's a boring lesson. And so I've got that same sort of feeling there, is it symbolic of repetitive lessons? We're just going to be going back and forth until you get distracted. Uh, yeah, it's very hypnotic, and it's really like what he manages to do with this one location. And I'll just mention very briefly uh, the central region, 
not my favorite Michael Snow film. It's actually my least favorite, but that's a single location one with a camera just in the central region of um, Canada and pivoting and swirling around and doing all different movements. It goes on for three hours, which, you know, for me was probably the kill point for it. But it is very interesting how dynamic he makes with just the one location. And then you've got is this, which has strictly got no locations. It's just words on the screen. But you could say the words by itself represents one location. And then you've got Corpus Colossum, which might even be my favourite film of the century. And I don't know if it's single location or not, because Michael Snow keeps stripping the layers away. We think, you know, we're in one room and then suddenly the paintings and everything on the wall suddenly starts dropping out and fading away and blurring from one to another. So it's sort of set in this office building where these people are conducting these experiments on their employees, maybe. I don't know. A whole lot of different strange things happen in it. Different characters are like in a wheelchair go over the screen and it just really plays around with the idea of what a film is and how a film is edited together and the fact that a film is always going to be something which is heavily constructed. So I don't know if it counts, but Michael Snow does, at least in his five major films, do some really great things with single locations. I think I'm in a bit of the same position as uh, you and uh, Tom were when I was presenting uh, The Music Room and Exterminating Angel because I have a very generally low opinion of wavelength um, back and forth, uh, and several of the other Michael Snow films. I just never saw the actual purpose of them. They felt uninventive to me at the time. So I never really got into films in that way. But to, to hear the way you describe them now with tiny details popping up and this blending of reality, I think we really rewatch them and see if I can get into that sense of exploring the piece and being surprised in that way. That sounds really, really fun and fascinating. One film I want to talk about in the experimental section here, which is might be perhaps closer to avant-garde, is Marcel Honon's Autumn, which is not even strictly one location. You can argue it either way. It does end with a bit of a release with footage from everywhere, but you can also argue that this is through the TV screen because or the editor screen. Because what is really interesting with this one film is that it's not just single location it is a single angle film which is to say our plot is a director is completing his film he gets pressure from his producers and he gets a professional editor to help him quite simple quite easy and the entire film or the majority of the film is shot with them looking at the film they're editing. The film itself, or the screen, is the camera. And we see them working on it. We see their discussions around it. It's really interesting, just the way that Michael Lonsdale, who plays our direct lead, and the female protagonist, played by an actress I'm not particularly familiar with, simply called Tamiya, form this kind of sexual tension you can feel the flirting. You're wondering what's going to happen there. But then you follow this plot. So it's not, like I said, not strictly experimental, closer to avant-garde, but just the fact that it's just that single angle shot and the way everything progresses is just incredibly fascinating to me. And it also makes for a really rewarding, interesting, and creative viewing. 
Another film that is not strictly experimental, but certainly one location is, of course, Lars von Trier's Dogwill, which is one of the most Brechtian and extreme minimalist films of all time, simply set on a soundstage with houses drawn in and the characters interacting with the houses as if they were real. Now, I think Dogwill deserves a podcast on its own, but it's so interesting to see just how you can work with a single setting and single location and create such different experiences with them, which ties us into our final part of today's podcast, the most extreme instances of single location, people literally buried or stuck in an ATM. And let's just start with the most obvious there and perhaps the most notorious. The actual buried. One man in a literal coffin, buried underground, with the only tool at his hand being his phone. Buried certainly takes the notion of a single location to its extreme. Having Ryan Reynolds trapped in a coffin underground for the film. And it builds a great sense of dread and suspense throughout. Though... As Sol often refers to single location films as gimmicky, I feel that this is one that stretches the idea of its gimmick perhaps a bit too far and is largely unsuccessful at what it sets out to achieve throughout. It's uh, really funny to hear Tom say that because, yes, I'm not a fan of gimmick cinema, but I actually really liked Buried. I actually thought it had a bit of a Kafkaesque vibe to it, just in the scenes where he was phoning the outside world and it was constantly put on hold, constantly transferred, it was fobbed with excuses, it was told to calm down. I thought it had a lot of Kafkaesque paranoia in there. Uh, you know, he's in the doesn't know what's going on and nobody gave him any answers and nobody really understands the situation that he was in. So, yeah, I was really surprised by how much I liked it. I went into it going, oh, you know, this is going to be a bit of you know a gimmicky sort of film you know ryan reynolds isn't my favorite actor of all time but i thought he did a really good job with the performance there and yeah the film surprised me i was really uh, impressed with it what it managed to do with a single location without missing them the whole time going oh this is a bit of a gimmick this is a film that wanted to attract audiences far and wide with its gimmick and it was fairly successful you wouldn't think you would get you know, as many people to see it as did when you have someone just trapped in a coffin. Though I'm guessing Ryan Reynolds certainly helped. What's fascinating to me is just how suspenseful Buried is. And, and it's done with very cheap tools. I think, like Saul, I really enjoyed the more Kafkaesque elements better because that was more understandable on a human level. It was relatable and you could feel trapped in that situation. Once the more thriller elements started to come in and everything just had to be done through the phone and it was trying to amplify that kind of tension. I mean, it did feel a little bit like uh, gravity to me. And I know it's all this like gravity when, you know, something just has to happen at all times just to keep people entertained but i ended up liking buried i think it's a good film so yes i will also sign up on the fact that yes it's an extreme gimmick film but at least to a certain extent it worked 
Yeah, what's interesting about it, because you said like Barry doesn't sound like a premise that would really attract people to come and see it, other than Ryan Reynolds starring in it. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but Adrian Brody did a film called Wrecked a few years after Barry came out. And that one has, you know, Adrian Brody waking up with amnesia in a car wreck. And he's stuck inside the front seat and he can't get out. He can't remember his name. The people who are in the car with him are dead and he's trying to remember it all. The first third or maybe the first half of the film is really good. But then without spoiling it, he does get out of the front seat. And even though things aren't over for him, it does sort of change the dynamics a little bit. That was just interesting. It was a film that, at least the way it was marketed to me, was a film trying to capitalise on what Buried managed to do. I had never even heard of Wreck, so that sounds really interesting, especially the first half hour. It's fascinating to hear you bring up this film involving Adrian Brody trapped in a car cell because another one of the films that we're going to discuss takes place in a car, and that is The Excellent Lock with Tom Hardy. It's incredible what the filmmakers do with this piece because the success of the film rests entirely on Hardy's performance as he's driving his car down the motorway. And like Ryan Reynolds in Buried, he's on the phone, he's talking to various different people in his life, and things start to unfold for him in ways that puts him in jeopardy. And he's driving along the motorway at night, and there's some excellent shots. And it's quite a thrill ride, even though... It's basically just Tom Hardy talking for the duration of the film. And I think it's an excellent demonstration of what you can achieve with a single location when you've got a fascinating story combined with a powerful performance. Someone who can really sell the idea that they're dealing with. As far as gimmicks go, I think Locke worked a lot better for me than Buried. And I think it's because it's written in a much more clever way and because it is more personal it's not as driven by hijinks and not as driven by you know something has to create suspense at any given point in time it does have elements of that and it's certainly very very emotionally draining just seeing tom hardy call this many people and try to get his life in order so we are trapped inside of the car with Tom Hardy the entire, more or less the entire time, or the entire time, really. And it's just this fact that he's going down that road with his life, where it is, and seeing his emotions and the way he really manages to perform in such a limited location. I mean, I think that is just absolutely incredible. Doc is an incredibly interesting film. Not only for the single location, but the fact that the film's about Tom Hardy's character reacting to two impending births. So there's the birth of this woman who is impregnated. There's also the birth of this skyscraper that he's working on. And half his conversations are about the work stuff, half the conversations about the woman. So that dynamic in itself is quite interesting. It gives a real insight into his character and how much he values this skyscraper that he's working on over the people in his life. I did find him a little bit of an obnoxious character. I didn't find him very likable at all. So I found the film wore thin a little bit towards the end. I got a little bit impatient with it. But in general, I was impressed by it. I think that why Locke works so well, as opposed to something like Buried, is perhaps because it seems and feels more grounded in realism. It's an everyday man that 
Tom Hardy portrays as his character and the storyline is is believable and you buy into it whereas Buried perhaps seems a bit more out there and one other film that I'd like to mention which is set almost entirely in a vehicle although it's not grounded in realism it does really well with the concept that it introduces so this is an Argentinian thriller called 4 by 4 and it's about a thief who tries to steal a radio from a pickup truck. Now, he gets into the car, but in doing so, he sets off this security device, which traps him within the car. And for almost the entire duration of the film, you're with this thief who's trapped inside the car. It's been soundproofed. It's got the latest technology to keep him trapped within. So passes by don't realise that he's trapped in there and his only interaction is through the car's internal communication system where the owner of the car talks to him and there's a lot of great social commentary there and it's a really great thrill ride. I can't recommend it enough. That sounds like a great recommendation, Tom. It really is, Chris, and I hope some people who are listening set out to watch it. It was one of those films that was on a a late-night slot at a film festival I was tired, but I took a punt on it and it woke me up. It's such an energetic performance from the lead actor. And yeah, I I hope some people check it out. Now, one film I really want to talk about is a completely different angle on just what an extreme one location film can be is Hans-Jürgen Söderberg's Winifred Wagner, which is a documentary. And this setup is so anti-cinematic in itself because it's literally a talking head interview where Söderberg interviews Winifred Wagner, who of course is Richard Wagner's daughter-in-law and was, more importantly, one of Adolf Hitler's very best friends. Now, what is so extremely interesting here is the way it makes it extremely suspenseful and extremely cinematic by doing some really interesting things, including working in limitations of the filmmaking itself into the story. At at the very beginning of the film, Tudorberg informs Winifred that each reel lasts 10 minutes, and, and, and the way the reels are all put together is with a bit of a black pause. And this also gives Winifred a chance to pause, where she's informed that it will run out soon. And it's a way to both trip her up and make her more earnest, and a way to just bring in a more dynamic element. It also manages to tie in things just like Altman did with Secret Honor in shooting photographs, shooting different angles within the house. But it's just so interesting that essentially it becomes a five-hour interview where the suspense lies in how much will she tell, what will be revealed. And the fact that she is completely unapologetic about her relationship with Hitler, and the fact that it slowly starts to become clear, if not from the beginning, that she is kind of still in love with Hitler or was in love with Hitler at the time. And the way this interview just keeps taking us further and further into understanding that time, that relationship, and tying it all back to Richard Wagner's music, it just becomes such an intense, creative, and 
pretty damn unique version of this extreme single location <laughs> subgenre, if you will, because just the way he managed to make this cinematic, the way he managed to make this thrilling is just, again, and I've used this word so many times in this episode, but, but that's because so many single location films really are in- incredible. On the subject of single location films and extreme examples, one that definitely floats to mind for me is David Brooks' 2012 film ATM. The entire film takes place inside an ATM booth, which sounds really boring and very gimmicky. And I sat down to watch it going, oh, yeah, we'll see how this goes. But it's actually a very interesting film. It's about these bankers and they're talking about all the crooked and corrupt stuff they're doing. And then they get trapped inside an ATM. They're basically stuck inside this ATM booth, which sort of represents why banking culture has become these days. And the reason why they're stuck inside is because there's a hooded guy outside. The hooded guy approaches them, but stays at a bit of a distance. And the whole film is not built on the guy in the hood being really scary. It's more about their fears and their reacting to him. And they do different things, like they try and leave when they don't think he's looking, and he approaches them and they get scared again. But he doesn't actually do anything outright that is dangerous or threatening. It's just his presence being there and the fact that they are inside the ATM booth with nowhere to go that really like captures the intensity there. I thought it was a really interesting film, especially considering how gimmicky it sounded. And if either of you have seen it, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on it. I haven't actually seen ATM Sol. I think I viewed it as a gimmicky film, as you said, and I kind of avoided it. But upon hearing your description, it does sound interesting. So perhaps I'll give it a shot in the near future. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't seen ATM either. Okay, that's all right. It's it's a film that, you know, was pretty low on my priority list also at a four point something rating on IMDb. So I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Then I saw it as a $2 extra rental. And I think I watched it for one of the horror challenges. Speaking of horror challenges and speaking of horror, one of the films that I wanted to mention was a film called Haze. It's from the director of Tetsuo and it's about a man who wakes up inside an area where he can't really move. He's like stuck inside like a drainage pipe or something. He can't move at all. And he's trying to work out how he got there. And as he like manages to maneuver his way out, he manages to come across somebody else who's also stuck there. Then the film goes in some directions there, which are a little bit out there and a bit unusual. It's probably not strictly a single location because of something at the end, but it's a film that's very brief. If memory serves correctly, it's only about 45 to 50 minutes long. And because it's really brief, the single location works really well and you never tire of it. And it's just the whole idea of, you know, what on earth is going on. And it's filmed in very low lighting. So it's even more unsettling because of that. If I had one criticism of the film, it's probably that the character talks out loud a lot. 
he is constantly asking himself what's going on out loud. So the film doesn't really find a very natural way of getting him to express his feelings. Because I think if I was trapped there, I don't think I'd be talking out loud to myself for 25 minutes before I found somebody else. And a lot of what he says is very repetitive, but the general setup's really good and it works really well because it is such a brief feature. I was drawn towards Hayes because of my love of Tetsuo and Hayes is perhaps well known for its extreme views on the subject matter that it delves into. It kind of shares some similarities with Cube and it's a surreal and nightmarish journey that isn't as successful as Cube in what it sets out to achieve. It's an interesting diversion and an imaginative use of the one location. It didn't really work for me as a whole. And as this is a bit of a somber ending of the podcast, uh, just a really quick, fun ending question. Can you think of a single extreme location which you would kind of like to see explored? I think that the perfect place for a horror film would be a morgue. Now, I'm trying to recall if there are films that have been set entirely in a morgue. I know we had the possession of Jane Doe recently, but I seem to recall that parts of that were done elsewhere. But I think setting a film entirely in a morgue would be very creepy, and there'd be a lot of opportunities to make a unsettling horror film. This is a really hard question for me, because, like I said, I'm not really big into gimmicky cinema. In terms of single locations, I am a really big fan of the Unfriended films and films like The Den and Selfie from Hell. So I would be interested in seeing more films that are sort of like set in one person's room where they're sort of only communicating to others through either their phone or through the computer. In terms of a unique setting that's never been done on film, it might be interesting to have something maybe that was maybe set inside a church or like a place of worship where the characters were unable to get out of that for whatever reason. That sounds like the perfect exterminating angels. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> exterminating angel again. Oh, dear. I do need to rewatch that at some stage. Yeah, that's okay. It really put me on the spot there, Chris. I'll probably think of something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No worries, no worries. I think that's a really great answer. I personally, seeing how well these multi-character films go, I think it would be really interesting to see a film set entirely in the waiting rooms, you know, during the reign of terror after the French Revolution with the aristocrats awaiting their potential death. I think those kinds of settings have always been really interesting to me and seeing characters would respond to their impending doom. I think that would have been a great one location setting. And then we can also just, in terms of getting it extreme, we can also just think of every single type of vehicle or every single type of situation in your home, etc., where someone's trapped. I like how you mentioned every type of vehicle there, Chris, because it's kind of given me an idea there. How about a film set entirely on a roller coaster? Oh, yes. I don't know how that would work, the logistics of that, or what the plot would even be. But I would really enjoy seeing a filmmaker have a stab at that and trying to make it into a coherent picture that works on some levels. That would be awesome. 
That'd be awesome. And if the roller coaster's like going the whole time and you like can't stop it and the camera sort of has to stay and they're all jump between carriages, yeah, that would be really cool having on a roller coaster. Absolutely. Or especially if it at certain times stops completely and maybe there's some kind of dramatic element there so that the characters, for instance, have to try to climb from wagon to wagon to quickly get very suspenseful. So I think we should probably delete this and make this film and make a lot of money. So, theme parks that will let us use their roller coasters. Let's do it. So, after discussing all of the creative ways Pillowcase News can bring exciting concepts to life, thank you all for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. And now, a little bonus conversation on Primer. Or is it Primer? LFO does bring the movie Primer to mind quite a bit. With the whole idea of its technology, which is sort of like being built in somebody's backyard or built in somebody's home. And it can do like all these amazing things. And yeah, the film is pronounced Primer and not Primer. So primer isn't like a first lesson on something. I guess we can call it primer if you want, but the word in the English language is primer. This doesn't need to be in the episode. I just wanted to tell you so it's pronounced primer, not primer. Are you sure about that? I've definitely, I've definitely heard, maybe it's different American or UK or whatever. I've definitely heard it pronounced primer as in like an introductory lesson to something. Yeah, I've never heard the word primer. And if... Because the word prime on its own would be prime. Take, for instance, Optimus Prime, and then you just got an R in the end. Optimus <laughs> Prime. <laughs> Look, that's what I thought also, but I have heard it used uh, as Prima before, and uh, it was actually in a film, and I did look it up afterwards, and I was like, oh, it actually is pronounced Prima. Oh, okay. I can't remember the film. There was some film over there, and the, one of the characters is like, oh, do you want to do the uh, Prima on this for whoever it was? I'm like, oh, it's an odd word. I'm like, oh, okay, it's Prima Prima. You've, you've actually talked to somebody and said Primer before and they haven't given you a strange look. I've just had a look on the internet now. So okay. basically, in American English, it seems to be pronounced Primer. Uh-huh. So perhaps that's why, but in British English, it's always going to be referred to as Primer. So that's something that I don't know anyway. So it's interesting that we found that out. <laughs> okay. Well... As an Australian, I probably should be doing British English. However, um, you know, I've grown up on American films, so I have to use the American terminology. This is really interesting because I actually use the word primer as primer in my own life. Not often. I don't drop it into every conversation <laughs> um, a couple of times and haven't got a strange look yet. Although people are probably just used to me using bigger words than I should use. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll turn the microphone off now. this this will all stay in you have been listening to Talking Images the official podcast of icmforum.com